where it was talking about all the blessings that we have in Christ. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms with all of these incredible blessings. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And just he rehearsed that in chapter 1. And then in verse 15 he says, For this reason, I want to pray for you. The church of Ephesians. I want to pray. And his prayer there was for enlightenment. I pray that you would receive the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. I pray that the, the eyes of your heart would be open so you could understand everything that you have in Christ. So you can understand who you are as a Christian. I want you to know these things, Paul says. First of all, I want you to know God. First and foremost, I want you to know Him. Then I want you to know the hope of your calling. Wow, there's a loaded sentence right there. I want you to understand the certainty that you can have knowing who you are in Christ. And then I want you to know the riches, the extent of the riches that you have in Christ as a believer. Wow, okay, there's just a load there. Just out of these incredible storehouses, you have these things coming to you. And then I want you to understand the power that you have. Not just in your own self, because that's not what it's about. The power that you have in Christ. The same power that raised him from the grave is the power that you have in your life to live out the Christian life. So chapter 1 was about who are you in Christ, and Paul's prayer there was, I want you to know who you are. I want you to be enlightened. I want you to understand fully all of that. And then Pastor Phil last week started out in in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, for this reason, for the second time here in this book, Paul's going to bring that up again. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then in the NIV, there's a dash there. And it's like he stops in a thought, right in the middle of a thought. And verses 2, really verses 2 to 13, are referred to as a parenthesis. They're this, kind of this rabbit trail, almost, if you will, going from where he was starting to, oh yeah, it's like he's reminded of something he needs to tell them. So he cuts it off and he goes, I want to tell you about the mystery. That was last week. I want to tell you about the mystery of this church, this new thing that God is doing. He's brought together Jews and Gentiles into one. He's broken down that dividing wall of hostility. We saw that. It's gone from you're going to be blessed in Abraham, all the world's going to be blessed in Abraham, to you're going to be blessed in Christ. It's a new way of thinking about things. This church, he chose us as individuals, but he also chose us collectively as his people, as the body of Christ. And that's the theme of this wonderful book of Ephesians. Together we're to be a light, shedding the light to the world about God's gospel. That's our purpose as the church of Christ. And it's a mystery. It wasn't known in the Old Testament fully, but now it's been revealed by God's Spirit. Through the purposes of God, we now understand what this church really is. And so verses 2 to 13, he goes into the, just telling us all the wonderful things about the mystery of the church. And in the note taker last week, I I thought this was beautiful. Phil had down there, the current of election moves from individuals to the body of believers. Chapter 1, it was we were chosen in him 
before the foundation of the world, you and me, as individual believers. But here's the good news. It didn't stop with that. God's plan is bigger than that. He chose us, the body of Christ, to be his people together to do this. And that's this wonderful current of election. And I thought that word election is weighing on our hearts this week, isn't it? Tuesday's a huge day in our country, if you think about it. It's a, it's a big deal, and, it, and it's important, and we're praying about it. But what I want you to hear is that God's election of you and God's election of us as his body, as a church, is far more important than any election of any political party or any particular measure on any ballot So we can just let it go. We can trust God because he has a purpose in mind. He has this all laid out for us beautifully. So we can relax. Come Wednesday morning, however it goes, we have our way. I have my desire. I know you have yours. But at the end of the day, he's chosen us. And we can rest in that. So there's the beauty of it. So for this reason, chapter 1, it leads into a prayer of enlightenment. Verse chapter 3, it's like he goes off on this rabbit trail, and sometimes rabbit trails can get us off the subject. When I was a teacher at NCC, and I know Sarah was one of my students, Sarah Weiss is sitting here, students used to love to do this, and I, never, I didn't realize it at first when I was a newbie, when I was a rookie teacher, but then I came to realize it, and I got a little smarter. They love to get teachers off on rabbit trails. Why? Because if they can do that, then they can get you off subject, and then, you know, there's not as much notes that they're responsible for, blah, blah, blah. So they, it, they I kid you not, man, the first of class, they would start with a question. Hey, did you see the game on Saturday? <laughs> Guess what? I'm off on a rabbit trail. And sometimes... I would catch myself and get back to the main subject, but oftentimes I would get off on this rabbit trail and just never come back to kind of what I'm supposed to be doing, teaching, right? Paul fortunately brings it back, and that's where we are in verse 14 to the end of this chapter. He says, where I started in verse 1, for this reason, he again says that in verse 14 here. He says, for this reason... He's going to bring us into this beautiful, the second, really, of his prayers for the Ephesian people. And what's amazing to me is that through the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have Paul's second prayer recorded for us here in the book of Ephesians. This is a prayer of empowerment. The first prayer was, I want you to know who you are. And as a pastor, I really think this fits beautifully with what my job is for you, the congregation, in preaching. I want you to know, I want you to be enlightened, I want you to understand who you are in Christ, number one. But it doesn't stop there. It, I want you to be encouraged, I want you to be empowered, I want you to be equipped. Those are words we're going to see as we move into Ephesians. To live out your identity in Christ. To live out who you are and what we're to be doing. And that's going to be the second half of the book of Ephesians. Now that we know who we are, let's get busy. Let's get busy working. Let's get busy walking in the Spirit. Sit, walk, stand. Remember those three words? Sit is chapters 1 through 3. We're going to bring it to a close today. 
We're seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's our position in Christ. That's who we are in Christ Jesus. Please know that first and foremost. But don't stop there. The next thing is walk in a manner worthy of your calling. How do you do that? Well, we're going to see how we do that. In chapter 6, remember you have a battle. Remember you have an enemy. So we need to learn to stand, putting on the full armor of God. Stand against our enemy. Take our stand in faith, right? Sit, walk, stand. That's the book of Ephesians in a simple outline. So this is Paul's second prayer, a prayer for empowerment. So we're going to see three movements in this prayer. There's an invocation, the first couple verses. Then there's petition. He's going to bring four requests to God. And then the last two verses are a beautiful doxology that Paul's just going to break into this beautiful doxology. So let's start with the invocation, verses 14 and 15. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. What a beautiful way to start off this incredible prayer. For this reason, Paul says, I'm going to kneel. Now, he's not mandating a posture in prayer here. You know, when we pray and when they prayed in Paul's day, in Jewish customs, the most common posture for prayer in their day would to be standing with their arms toward heaven. That was the common posture of prayer. But there was different times and different places where they would pray with different postures. So what would cause someone to want to kneel in prayer? If you think about it, I think the first one that comes to my mind is humility. Realizing that you're in the presence of someone that is greater than you, your sovereign, your Lord. In Philippians 2, verse 10, it says, at the name of Jesus, right? At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. We know someday we're all going to bow because it's a reverence. It's, it's a humility. We're understanding he is Lord. It's his name. So submission to a higher authority is one reason that you would kneel to pray. A second reason, I think, is because there's something there that you're very passionate about. There's something there that's incredibly important to you that is driving you to your knees. It's so important you can't stand when you pray. If you think about the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified, what was he doing? He was kneeling, he was on his face before his Father, praying to God, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. I mean, there's just this incredible outpouring of passion and desire that was coming out of Jesus. And I think that's what Paul's saying here. There was this incredible passion that Paul has, and he says, I'm kneeling here before the Father. Now, was he literally kneeling? Again, remember he was in prison. We don't know exactly what his situation was there. Was he kneeling? But we know for sure his heart was before his Father. He says, I'm passionate about this. I want God to hear this. (laughs) This is important to me on account of you, the people there in the, in the church at Ephesus. So I'm kneeling, and I'm kneeling before my father. This idea that this is someone that isn't, I don't, I'm not doing this out of fear or some kind of a fear that he, he may not even hear or maybe he won't care. This is my father that I'm kneeling before. This is a father 
that wants me to come to him more than I want to go to him. That's the heart of my heavenly Father towards me. We can have this incredible confidence when we pray. Paul has mentioned this in this chapter in verse 12. It says, In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. That's, we know who he is. He's our, he's our Father. We have full access to him through the Holy Spirit. We can come with full faith, full confidence. But that's the person that I'm coming to. This is my Father here. And then he says, The Father from which every family on heaven and earth derives its name. And that's an interesting phrase there. And in the note taker, you can see here, there's two words there. The first word is the Greek word for father, pater. The second word is the Greek word for family. And it's a derivative of father. In fact, Paul is doing a little bit of a, almost a word play. There's such close similarity between father and family here. It literally means that our family is our fathering. Our father is fathering us. We're his family. It's, it's this beautiful idea that we get our name from him. He brings us into unity with each other. And in our, even in American culture, we get this. When people get married, they take on the name of the father. And the children take on the surname of the father in that, in that situation. And the same thing is true here. He is our father. We take on his name. We are then brought together into one family. And I love how he says, those that are both in heaven and on earth, those that are alive and those that have passed and gone on to be with him. The church militant and the church victorious. How's that? One of the commentaries brought out that. The church that's here doing battle still and the church that is experiencing the victory that Christ gave. We're together. There's this beautiful unity that comes about. So what is Paul going to pray for? Well, verses 16 to 19, let's see what he, what he has in mind here as he prays for these people. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I want you to notice a few things about the four requests, and they're in the note taker here. The first one is that there's going to be a building on one to the next. It's kind of a progression, and Paul's going to kind of talk this way as we move through the four requests. The second thing I want you to notice is that we see the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're going to see the Trinity all through Ephesians. In fact, the more I read God's Word, the more I, I just see the Trinity working together, and that's the book of Ephesians. It's the story of God, the Father, and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're going to see that. But you're also going to see that, and Paul mentions it here, it's coming out of his glorious riches. Where are all these requests coming from? Paul says it's going to come out of God's glorious, all the source 
of all these things is what God has already given us in Christ Jesus. He's already talked about these things. Go back into chapter 1, verse 7. Here's what Paul says about the riches that we have as believers. He says, In Christ, in Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. There's the riches of God's grace. It's like the riches there are paid out in the currency of God's grace and His mercy for us. Isn't that beautiful? So that we have forgiveness of sin, so that all of our debt has been paid with the riches of God's grace. There it is. But it doesn't stop there. There's more. But wait, there's more. I love that. Look at verse 18. What verse 18 says. This idea, this theme of riches is throughout. I pray the eyes of your heart, this is that prayer early on in chapter 1, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. There's just all these riches that are available to us and to all his holy people. So out of this, his glorious riches, Paul says, I'm going to pray four requests for you Christians there in, in the church at Ephesus. The first one in verse 16, I'm going to pray the Spirit's power in your life. I'm going to pray that you would be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. You're going to need the Holy Spirit to give you the power. We walk by faith, not by sight. We walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. And we see that throughout the New Testament. It needs to start there. There's your starting point. This incredible strength and this incredible power. Back in chapter 2, he had mentioned that also. You're strengthened. You have all this energy that comes from God through the Holy Spirit. You have this power. That word there is dunamis, dynamite. This dynamo exists within your heart. That's the power that you have. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Then you will be my witnesses. Now, Paul understood this idea of power. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4, this is what he says. He says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. It wasn't about the words. It wasn't about how I organized what I said or how I said it even. But look, it was a demonstration of the Spirit's power. It was when I preached, when I talked, it was the Spirit giving me the power to do that. And it was just this demonstration of the Spirit. So the Spirit's power, Paul says, as Christians we need to understand that and really make use of it. It's there. He already indwells our lives. Let's live accordingly. Now, where is this taking place? Paul says it's in the inner being. It's in the inner man. It's from inside out. It's where only God can touch us. It's the work of God that began at salvation but is continuing on through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, right? It was a work of God to save me. I was dead. I had to be raised to life to even come into a relationship with Him. Say nothing about now walking and being led by the Spirit. Man, I needed a work of God then. I need a work of God now in my life. 
There's a verse in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, Paul says. Though outwardly, we're wasting away. (laughs) Doug on it. Every birthday, as joyful as it is, right? Josh, you're a year older. (laughs) What can I say? I used to love birthdays. Now I'm a little more reluctant, to be honest. I mean, we're wasting away. We're physically, outwardly, we're getting older. We're losing energy. But look, here's the good news. Yet inwardly, in here, in our inner man, we are being renewed day by day. We're getting stronger. How? The Holy Spirit. We might be losing it out here, getting weaker, running out of energy. But you know what? Day by day, I'm growing, I'm getting stronger in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's his work in my life. The obedient, growing Christian needs to be spirit-conscious, spirit-filled, and spirit-led. There it is. The power comes through the Holy Spirit. So that's his first request, verse 16, that you would experience the Spirit's power in your inner being. Second request, verse 17, right at the beginning, so that, he ties it in, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Wait a minute. These people are already believers. Isn't Christ already in their hearts? And the answer to that is yes. So what is Paul saying here? He's not talking about the fact of Christ's presence in their heart. He's there through the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the quality of his presence in their hearts. The word dwell that's used here, that he may dwell. That word literally means the idea of settling down, making oneself at home in our hearts. He's there, but is he at home? Is he settled down in your hearts? It's the idea, it's kind of the difference between a tolerated visitor and a welcome friend. I was thinking about this a little bit in terms of the way we operate with our home Christ, our heart, Christ's home. There's a great classic book that's been around since early 50s written by a guy named Robert Munger. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. Maybe you're aware of it. Maybe you've read it. It's a beautiful story. And Don, if you just want to shoot that picture up there, it takes this idea of letting Christ come into your heart as a home, with different rooms. If you think about it, when we let people into our homes, we do it on different levels. I might invite you over for dinner at my home. You're a welcome guest. There's a difference between you being a welcome guest and two Mormon missionaries that show up on my doorstep wanting to sell me a religion. Is that fair to say? I may or may not let them into my home depending on how I feel at the moment. But even if I do let them into my home, it's going to be on a different level than when I invite you over for dinner. You're my friend. You are very welcomed in my home. I want to make my home look nice for you. I want you to feel welcomed in my home. I want to show courtesy and hospitality to you. But it goes up a notch with family, So now your family comes over to your home. It's a little different, isn't it? My family knows where the good treats are in my house, right? 
One of my favorite treats is fruit snacks. I have a place. I'm not going to tell you all where it's at in case you come over. There's a place where I have my fruit snacks. My family knows where that's at. They like fruit snacks too, so they'll just go and help themselves, right? Or they know in the refrigerator there's some cold bubbly or, you know, some kind of cold drink they're waiting for them. They just go and help themselves. They don't need to ask. And that's totally fine with me. I love it. I love it that they've made themselves at home. But I think what Paul's saying here is let's take it a notch even further. And that's what my heart, Christ Holmes, speaks of. Let's let him take over the place. Let's let him be Lord of the house. Not just a welcome guest into my heart as my Savior, which is great, but he needs to be Lord of my house. So in my house, there's rooms. There's places like the library where maybe I'm learning. It's the place where I learn about things. It's my thinking I want to let Christ be a part of that. I want to learn about him. There's a rec room. This is the place I go to enjoy, to have fun. I want to invite Christ into that part of my life. How about the living room? This is where fellowship happens. This is where family happens. I want to invite Christ into that. However... Within every house, and you guys know this is true, there are rooms that are just flat out off limits. There are closets in our homes, most likely, just like our hearts, where we don't want anybody to see that. We have closed the door. We've hidden stuff in there. It is a mess. We don't want anybody to see it. We don't want anybody to mess with it. We don't even want them to be aware it's there. And we do that sometimes, I think, with Christ. There are parts of my life that are just flat off out, off limits to him. If he's my Lord, that can't be. I need to let him in to that room. Why? Because I'm going to give him access to every part of my life, and I'm going to let him make changes. I'm going to let him move some furniture around. I'm going to let him... Take some things maybe off the wall that aren't glorifying to him. Ooh, that was there. That's right. Okay. Let's get rid of that. Thank you. It's your house, Lord. You're, you're the Lord now. Take it. It's that idea that Christ may dwell as the Lord in your hearts. Once he's settled down, And only when he's really settled down and at home in our hearts do we really experience the third request. And this is that progression. We experience his love. And Paul's going to pray a couple requests related to Christ's love. He says, first of all, that you're rooted and grounded. Established is the NIV word. Rooted and grounded in this love. These are two, there's two kind of mixed metaphors here. The first one is biological, rooted, agricultural. The idea is that in your heart, Christ's love would go down deep with his roots into, your, into the soil of your heart and that it would grow. That's really what's going on here. That growth would happen in regards to Christ's love. The second one, grounded or established, it's not an electrical term. Sorry, Ron. I think of, we think of grounded in electrical terms. 
It has to do with architectural. It's a foundation that you have a good establishment, a good grounding, a good foundation in your heart. The deeper it goes, the more established it is, the better it is, the higher you can go, right? The higher you can grow as a structure. Paul's already talked about the fact that we are a building. The foundation's already been laid, the apostles and prophets, with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And now we are these, we're the building blocks of this house that are being worked on individually and then brought together into this beautiful building. That's who we are as the building of Christ. There's really three metaphors for the church in this wonderful book. There's the body of Christ, where Christ is the head of the body. There's the building, where he's the chief cornerstone. And then we're going to see in chapter 5, the bride of Christ. He is the bridegroom. And there's three beautiful metaphors that the book of Ephesians brings in to show us who we are as his church, who we are as his people. So I want you to be rooted and grounded, established in this love so that you can grow, Paul says. Stability, opportunity for growth. But then he says, no, I, don't, I want an end there. I want you to fully grasp the full dimension of God's love. It's like love in 4D here. How wide it is, how long it is, how high it is, and how deep it is. And in those four dimensions, we see the gospel. The gospel of God is wide. It reaches to all people. We've seen that in the book of Ephesians. Whether you're a Greek, Gentile, or whether you're a Jew, doesn't matter. In Christ, it reaches to everybody. It is a wide gospel, but it is a long gospel. It stretches from eternity past to eternity future. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world, and guess what? It's going on into all eternity where you're going to reign with him in heaven. It's a long love, but it's also a high love. It comes from heaven, and it draws us up. It, we're seated in heavenly places in Christ. It's a high love. That's part of the gospel, but I love this aspect. Don't leave it there. It's deep. It goes low. It reaches down to the most pathetic, the most sinful, the most lost condition of man's heart that you can imagine. And it reaches us down there at our lowest point and it draws us up. It's wide, it's long, it's high, and it's deep, Paul says. I want you to see it in all four dimensions of what the gospel really is. So, it's beyond measure, Paul says, but it's also beyond knowledge. It's beyond understanding. In verse 19, there's this weird paradox. He says, I want you to know the love that surpasses knowledge. I want you to know it, but guess what? It goes way beyond what you can think, what you can fully understand. So love is the key to experiencing the truth of the Spirit. I found this, and I wanted to share this with you. This is from Dr. Donald Barnhouse. He was a great Bible teacher. And he talks about how love is that beautiful aspect and how the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 are rooted in love. Here's what he says. He says, love is the key. It's the first one mentioned of the nine, right? Love is the key. Joy is love singing. Peace is love resting. Long-suffering is love enduring. Kindness is love's touch. 
Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's habit. Gentleness is love's self-forgetfulness. And self-control is love's holding the reins. Isn't that beautiful? It starts with love, and love just goes through all of the other eight fruits of the Spirit there. He ends with the fourth request, and that is the fullness of God. Verse 19b, he says, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He sees this kind of as the end result. Starts out with understanding the strength through the Holy Spirit. Now we've allowed Christ to come into our hearts. He's made his home there. We understand, we've experienced his abundant love in our lives. We've grown in his love. Finally, the last one is the fullness of God. That God's ultimate goal in bringing us to himself is to make us like him, filling us up with who he is. I Sometimes, most of the time, I have a glass up here with water. And, and the reason is because sometimes, you know, the throat gets a little raspy and I can't talk. So I just, it's there kind of as a safety blanket for me. But I want to kind of use this as, as a illustration today. It's not full today because I don't want to get a full cup up here and spill all over the place and make a big scene and a mess. But what Paul's saying is, I want you like a cup to be filled right to the very brim with God. What he means by that is every bit of you are filled with him. So that there's no room in this cup for you. There's no room in this cup for the old man, who we were before Christ, that we are filled to the very brim with him. So that if I'm, somebody touches me, bumps up against me, guess what? God flows out of my life. I am full to the brim with him. That's the picture of what Paul wants for these Ephesian Christians, this beautiful full cup of water. And in the book of Ephesians here in chapter three, we're to be filled with the fullness of God and next probably week or two in chapter four, we're to be full to the fullness of Christ. Then in chapter five, he says, don't get drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with God, the Father. Be filled with the full measure of Jesus Christ. Be filled with the Spirit. Guess what? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's the Trinity, again, the fullness. I love verses 20 and 21. Now to him, it says, who is able to do immeasurably more than we all ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Period. I love this section because it goes now to him. It's from talking about God to just speaking right directly to God. It's like he turns his attention away from the people in Ephesians to God. And it's all about God's glory. I love this progression that we see. Him who is able. Him who is able to do. Him who is able to do immeasurably more. Him who is able to do immeasurably, measurably more than we ask. Him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. It's just this beautiful progression of what God has done, what God has given to us. It's immeasurably more than we can even ask for or even imagine asking for. Think about that. 
That's how great God's gift is to us. Then he says, according to his power that is at work within us. That's the Holy Spirit. We have him living in our lives. Then it talks about this link between Christ and the church. To him be glory in, in the church and in Christ Jesus. We're linked together with Christ as his body. It's just this beautiful thing. And it's like Paul just breaks out in this incredible spontaneous praise. Donna, if you want to shoot that picture up, last week, those of you that are baseball fans know this, the World Series came to an end, and the L.A. Dodgers, I know George is probably excited about this, the L.A. Dodgers won in six games, they beat the Tampa Rays in baseball. Now, obviously, in order to win baseball, you've got to have good pitching. It's got to start there. Hitting is great, but pitching is key. And I know George knows who this person is. Oral Hershiser. In 1988 was the last time that the L.A. Dodgers won the World Series. It's been a long time. And Oral Hershiser was the MVP of the series when they won. And here's a story about Oral. And I remember watching the night that he did this, so I just want to read this story. It says, about 30, 32 years ago, Oral Hershiser was pitching for the L.A. Dodgers. They had just won the World Series. Oral had been named MVP. One of the TV cameras during the series showed him in the dugout just before the ninth inning. He was leaning against the wall. His lips were moving. Hmm. So when he was a guest on The Tonight Show, Johnny Carson asked him what he had been saying. And he said, I wasn't really saying anything. Oral responded, well then, what were you, what were you doing? What was going on? Why were your lips moving there? Finally, Oral replied, I was singing. Johnny said, you were singing? I didn't know you were a singer. Come on. Sing for us. So here's Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show with Oral Hersizer there. Come on in front of all this crowd and millions of viewers. Sing for us. What were you singing? Finally, Oral Hersheiser started to sing. And here's what he sang. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. I remember watching that that night, and it stunned me. And what happened in the crowd that night was one person kind of stood up, started clapping, then the whole place stood up. And they started clapping, and I thought, what a beautiful way to say everything in my life, everything in my life goes back to the glory of God. That's where it goes. And that was his beautiful doxology, and that's where I want to end this morning, is giving all the praise, all the glory to our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ.